This is the Ogilvy Podcast. I'm Chris Saletti. And I'm Carter Pearson. DNA is a pattern. We perceive the world in terms of patterns, whether that's shapes or um, familiar objects or colors or spectrums. All of these things help us understand the world around us. So that, that then applies on kind of these most basic fundamental physics levels, but also in these sociocultural levels how flocking birds is kind of the way that people move in social networks online, which is similar to the way that crowds move when they're gathered all in one space. Um, so you can kind of see the similarities here, and one pattern helps you understand another. How do patterns affect our day-to-day life? We know that's a pretty big, if not completely unanswerable question. But if you think about it, so much of our everyday life either follows a pattern or is based on some sort of pattern. Why is that? Let's go to the source of it all, our brains. To do that, we spoke with a bunch of smart people, including millennial whoop aficionado Patrick Metzger of thepatterning.com, who you just heard from, Dr. Jennifer Scott, head of research and intelligence at Ogilvy, Derek Thompson, best-selling author and senior business editor at The Atlantic, and yes, evolutionary biologist Dr. Mark Madsen, who authored an aptly titled paper, Superior Pattern Processing is the Essence of the Evolved Human Brain, to explain how pattern processing sets human beings apart. What the human brain can do that these lower animal brains can't do, it can process the pattern, patterns in ways uh, that result in the generation of new patterns. So animals can follow pattern related to food, water, shelter, danger, basic needs. But humans have an intrinsic need to understand the world. That's where things like music, language, and stories come into play. These things come from human ability not just to recognize patterns, but to create new ones and sequence them together to create meaning or emotion. So to summarize, humans can create new patterns, language, to create larger patterns, story, to create the biggest pattern, meaning. And because we use language to create stories to make meaning, they end up being really personal to us. And usually we end up connecting with stories that tell us something about ourselves. As Dr. Jennifer Scott says, we connect with stories that connect to something deeply inside of us, that give us, that explain an idea that we have about ourselves. It always gets very personal for people because we attach to stories that contain, that, that invite us in, in ways that are particularly meaningful for us. So if, if, if a person has a particularly, for example, um, romantic sensibility, often their favorite stories will, will have invited them into a very beautiful romantic journey. If you have a very adversarial sensibility, you might like stories that invite you into uh, warfare or epic clashes of, of, of forces, you know. I have to say that my favorite, probably, uh, since I was a kid, I just love the stories of Sherlock Holmes, um, Arthur Conan Doyle. And I think when I look back now, it makes perfect sense to me. What am I doing with my life? I'm head of research and intelligence. Like all of us, if we look at the stories that we're drawn to, they're so telling about what journeys we like to be taken on. And that in turn is very helpful as we try to understand ourselves and what makes us tick in the world. 
what is it about stories that resonate with us? Why are we so easily able to attach to them? And why do they provide meaning and direction in our day-to-day -day lives? Stories follow an archetypal pattern, which makes us comfortable, whether it's a tale of a dark, dark wood or a self-medicated detective. Firstly, it consists of, at its most fundamental core, four elements. So the first is what we call a situation. And this is often a source of quote-unquote tension. So a situation in a classic story would be, it was a dark and stormy night, right? Suddenly, you've got a situation you can visualize, and you've got a tension. Then you have to put the second element in, which we call the protagonist. And the captain of the sailing ship stood on the prow, facing into the wind. So suddenly, we have an identifiable hero. The third component is what happens. Rising up in front of him, he saw a giant white whale, right? Something's happening. Calling out the order, you know, uh, harpoons pounded into the whale. So now we know the substance of what's going on in the story. And the good, a good what happens has peaks and dips of tension. And then the final part is the resolution. Because if I ended my story right now, everybody would feel cheated and nobody would like me. Something right. has to happen. Right. The whale has to win. The sea captain has to win. We need to have it tied up in a bow. And then we get a release of tension. And we're, we, we just feel great. And it's those four components, no matter what you're doing, if you're telling a child a story, if you're talking to your buddies, or if you're trying to communicate about a company and what it does in the world, you have to try and include those four elements. And that familiar story arc, as explained by Dr. Jennifer Scott, helps explain why we feel so comfortable with story. But what is it about stories themselves that breed that comfort? Why have we always told ourselves stories? Derek Thompson, author of the new book Hitmakers, explains. We see comfort in patterns, and we also see comfort in certainty. And one source of certainty uh, is stories. Uh, when there is a big unknown in the world, we tell ourselves or tell our tribe or our country a story that answers that question. Uh, when we didn't understand uh, why the sun rose and set and where the moon came from, we invented gods that put them there. Um, and we invented gods of seasons and invented gods of, of luck and, and bounty and uh, drought and flood and all of this. Um, and slowly, you know, uh, science began to answer a bunch of these questions and say, no, actually, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's the, you know, the, the shape of the solar system and, and gravity that, that uh, creates all of these um, astrological uh, observations and phenomena. Um, but even now, there's still a lot that we don't know, you know, where we came from, what we're for. Um, and we tell ourselves stories for that, sometimes drawn from religion, sometimes drawn from um, uh, from, from other things like philosophy. Uh, I, even in, in my job in economics and politics, we're constantly trying to come up um, with, uh, uh, with grand theories to explain, you know, why do um, economies rise and fall? Uh, what do you do when the economy is, is bad? Uh, how do you um, make a poor family rich? Um, these are really st difficult questions. They are nearly chaotic in terms of uh, the evidence swirling around, the data swirling around them. But in order to make sense of it, um, we tell ourselves uh, a, a story, give ourselves a, a theory, and that makes us feel better about it. 
So as Derek said, we, we use stories to explain things that we couldn't explain for the longest time. But now that we can explain a lot of these natural phenomena, stories are being used to explain or give a hashtag narrative to things that can't be explained with a simple story. Um, so he talked about things like the economy, you know, why some people succeed when others fail. And those things are really just too complex for a simple, sweeping, clean narrative to explain. And I think that ends up getting us in, in trouble a little bit. Um, the other thing about story pattern that's so powerful and um, the folks who have been studying neuropsychology have really identified it more clearly in the last few years is the story pattern in chemical terms actually increases the uptake of, of oxytocin in the brain. So stories increase the uptake of a chemical in our brain. And what does oxytocin do for you? It makes you more trust, trusting. It makes you more compassionate, more empathic. You want to hug everyone when you're on a lot of <laughs> oxytocin. So think about that. If I'm telling you something in a story pattern, what it's doing is releasing a specific chemical in your body that is making you more likely to buy into what I'm saying and be my friend at the end and want to join me on my mission to take on the whale. Stories that follow an arc or pattern also play a huge role in making us feel more comfortable in our surroundings, making us feel like we're a part of something. Once again, here's Patrick. And I do think that it gives us a, a huge degree of comfort to know, to feel like we know what's going on, whether that's in a social situation, whether that's in songs. I think that's a lot of the reason pop music exists to begin with. It's kind of built out of these tropes and chord progressions that remind us of songs we've heard before, maybe songs we've heard in our childhood. So why can't you get California Girls or Good Time out of your head? The main reason may be the millennial whoop, a term coined by Metzger on his blog, The Patterning, to describe my generation's glorious obsession with the melodic alternation between the fifth and the third octave. If you're curious about some other songs with the Millennial Whoop, check out Metzger's blog, where songs by everyone from Nicki Minaj to Death Cab for Cutie are listed. But the flip side of this is when a pattern is broken, we really notice it. Why is that? Yeah, and I think you can go way back evolutionarily. You know, if there's some abnormal pattern in your environment, you know, say you're walking through the woods and you've walked through that same path many times and there's something that's different. It, it could be some predator or some hazard coming up. It makes a lot of sense that it would be a survival advantage to be able to recognize a difference in the pattern from what you've experienced before. And this still affects us in our day-to-day -day lives. Although now, rather than fearing for our lives, our reaction to a closed coffee shop or a detour is just a mild annoyance. But this broken pattern affects our enjoyment of a story, how we react to it, and how it resonates with us. We can always find a new spot for coffee along our morning routine, but a story only gets one chance to stick the landing. I think sometimes people try to be original by busting that underlying pattern. So um, I'm, I'm going to date myself, but you guys remember the end of The Sopranos. It didn't, there wasn't a resolution. Right, right. And it's happened again and again. And they were busting, I think they had, you know, sequels in mind, but they were busting that paradigm. But ultimately, I'm not sure that was entirely satisfying. I think the epic nature of that 
of that show lost some of its enduring power because they never resolved it. Um, so what I would say is you can try to bust that core underlying story arc pattern and be original. You have to be careful because we don't like it. We tend to step back. Right. Um, what I would say is within that basic pattern, there's so much opportunity for originality because the way you, you create a situation, the hero's engagement, all of that really only has its power if it opens up a scenario where the listener can feel drawn in and, and, and a participant in the story. And so there are a million ways, and they're evolving all the time as we change as human beings, there are a million ways to bring somebody in as a participant. And, and that emotional journey that you take people on, that particular kind of participatory journey, where am I going now? How's it gonna evolve? What are those peaks, peaks and valleys of tension that you're gonna take me on before you resolve it? All that is fair game, fair game. Though I may not personally agree 100% with Jennifer on the ending of The Sopranos. To me, it's brilliant. I mean, we're still talking and debating about it today. She does have a point. Especially if you're trying to tell a story to convince people to, I don't know, buy something. Okay, so we'll get to the advertising section of the podcast here in a second. But first of all, if you think your television is broken, I think your story failed. Yeah, stories are, are definitely the lifeblood of our industry, but the types of stories that we that we tell each other are no means one size fits all. Uh, Derek Thompson says. Well, I think the idea is that um, you know it's important to tell a new story, right? You don't you, if if you just tell the same story over and over and over again, people get bored of it, they habituate, they stop listening. Um, the key essentially is to say, okay, like you know, if if we do have a new message, um, if we do have a new idea. Um, what, is a, what is an established pattern, an established sort of narrative that we can use in order to make people understand it? Um, one way that I sum it up in the book is this idea of if you're trying to sell something familiar, the key is to make it new. But if you're trying to sell something that's truly new, the key is to make it a little bit familiar. So as an example, let's take credit cards. Any sort of point system or rewards program or perks that you hear about in credit cards ads they're largely a way just to differentiate what is ultimately the same product, credit. Yeah, shout out to my old boss there. He loved credit cards. Another, another industry where that's sort of rampant with this type of commodity differentiation is uh, TVs. Like, you'll hear a lot of unintelligible jargon around TVs, and they basically all just mean good picture, which makes sense because if you're advertising a TV and you're not going to say good picture then really, what are you trying to say? Um, so basically, anytime somebody's trying to sell you something with a lot of jargon that basically means something really simple, um, try and remember this from Derek. And he explains sort of the phenomena in reverse here when he's talking about something that is new and how a company used it to make it much more familiar. And as he wrote the book, his example is much more spot on than ours was. Um, you know, Amazon's Alexa uh, doesn't sound like a scary... Um, uh, robot, it sounds like a lilting female voice, which um, for potentially gendered reasons is exactly what most people have come to think of in terms of an assistant. Um, and so, uh, again, to, to sell this new product that people hadn't sort of interacted with before, um, they made it as familiar as possible. Um, they made it uh, a, a prototypical um, archetypal uh, assistant. 
Um, and so I think with those two examples, you can sort of see how, how, th- how this works, how it's not just about, you know, make the product familiar, make it familiar. That's not what I'm saying. First, understand um, where you are in the spectrum of surprise to familiarity, and then try to find a way to push yourself toward the center so you have a little bit of both, a little bit of novelty and a little bit of familiarity as well. So, Chris, we talked about a few things today. Uh, We talked about evolutionary biology. We talked about uh, Herman Melville. We talked about Katy Perry. We talked about The Sopranos. Yes, we did. How are you feeling about all this? So to me, where does the concept of originality fit in? It's clear that that patterns uh, and following certain patterns works. We, We have explored why they work. And... You should want to sell things. You should want people to watch your movie or read your book or listen to your song. Mm-hmm. But where do we sort of, what do we lose by following these patterns, if yeah. anything at all? Yeah, I think that I think that's a, an interesting question. So I think if you're going to be, and this is sort of cribbing from, from Derek a little bit, but if you're going to be, if let's say we're talking about music, if you're going to have a really original sound, you have to do it within the song structure that everyone is interested in or everyone is used to hearing familiar with familiar with yeah um but if you have a really classic sound then you need to subvert that structure and in an advertising example if you're talking about those geico ads that everyone loves the like six second ones where they sort of broke the the form of your online ad yes they did those using scenes that were super familiar so they right. said, okay, we're going to mess around with the form here, but the thing that people are actually seeing is going to be a really simple backyard barbecue. Right. So maybe it has to do with, when you're talking about stories, it's maybe not so much about messing with the structure, but maybe messing with the form a little bit. Or, or taking what works for one audience and maybe trying it to sort of retrofit it for another audience. So maybe that's where the originality lies, is not so much in sort of the structure of how something is built, but maybe how it's presented, or maybe who it's presented to. Maybe that's where you can sort of take chances and be original. If you think about some, so we just exited like the golden age of television, when all (laughs) TV shows were like difficult man and or woman with alcohol and or drug problems, who is at the top of his or her job, runs roughshod over X industry for five to seven seasons. Right. Um, and, you know, that was great. It gave us shows like Mad Men. It gave us shows like the first season of Homeland. It also gave us shows like the fourth season of Homeland. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> right. But now you're seeing shows from, you know, like uh, HBO is coming out with a show this year called Room 104, I believe. And it's basically yeah. going to follow the trials and travails of one hotel room. Yes. So the characters are going to be completely different episode to episode. So they're really messing with the form of what a television series can be. Right. But they're doing it in a setting that is extremely familiar to anyone who has ever watched any any form of American media. I guess the the the, the, what remains to be seen is how successful that show will be. Right. Because it's taking a chance in... In how it's structured, it's completely unique in a, in a sense from what is at least popular. 
Right. Because, I mean, I think that's also what's, what's an interesting point is in there's originality sort of on the outside, on the, on the ends of the spectrum. There's originality in the underground. Right? The avant-garde. Yeah, exactly. And so, yes, if you want to make something mainstream, you're, you're probably not going to want to mess too much with convention. Yeah, two and a half right. men not really messing with the format of the family no. sitcom. You know, we sort of run the risk of everything being the same. I think you're getting to the point where popular culture is going to be really homogenous across the globe, but due to the proliferation of distribution channels, you're also going to be able to find really, really niche content for exactly what you're interested in. Right. So I think you're we're entering a, a an age of both really, really homogenous pop culture and then really, really heterogeneous L other culture. Yes, because what the internet has been able to do as the sort of great democratizer, it has allowed the underground or avant-garde to rise up to the surface. Since Patrick sort of was a little bit of our inspiration for this episode, I feel like we should give him the last word. And he, you know, as he is, is wont to do on his blog, uh, was slightly pessimistic about the effect of patterns on our culture at large. I feel that there's something lost in the cultures that kind of get diminished across the planet, really, uh, when we all focus on the same idea. Virality is a really cool thing, right, that an idea can take off, and it can be, you know, a kid in his backyard with a cell phone recording some uh, you know, something that happens that he sees, or even just him playing a song, and then that takes off, and it's everywhere, and that's an amazing thing that it can kind of blow up, and everybody can be sharing in this moment all across the world. At the same time, the things we tend to focus on are often kind of in this same family of dominant culture ideals, which then leaves out a whole section of the world that we don't then engage with. This has been an Ogilvy production. Our sound engineer is Ken Meyer, and our music and special effects are produced by Alan Hotchkiss. Mm-hmm. You, you, you gonna do now, you.